Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything else we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Now, exactly one year ago this week, we published this conversation about coffee over on our Gear 30 podcast feed. That is Gear 30 episode number 158. And since this conversation is very much the spiritual predecessor of this new Crafted podcast, we wanted to give it a home in this Crafted feed too. And while we happen to be big fans of First Ascent's beans, they might be best known for their instant coffee. So in this conversation, First Descent owner and partner and coffee roaster, Sam Higby, discusses the difference between very good and very bad instant coffee. We talk about light roasts versus dark roasts. We talk about the brewing process in general, also brewing coffee at altitude, which is what we do here in Crested Butte. And we also, importantly, talk about how to make great coffee on a budget and more. And so today, we are running back our coffee conversation with Sam Higby, and then next week, we will be publishing a conversation that I recorded on-site from the best brewery in Park City, Utah. It is pretty small, it's quite new, but they are making extremely good beer there in Park City. And I'm actually going to go ahead and tell you at the very end of this episode which brewery in Park City it is that I'm talking about. But for now, let's go ahead and dive deep into all things coffee. Here we go. All right, well, I am back in Blister HQ once again with Sam. We were supposed to start recording an hour ago, but we (laughs) we just spent the last hour talking about skis and the outdoor industry, and then whiskey, actually. But our purpose today is to talk about coffee. And listeners of Gear 30 and probably most of our other podcasts probably know a bit about my, I don't know, I guess I could say affinity for coffee or maybe utter dependence on coffee, something like that. But you and I have been talking about coffee a lot for, I don't know, Seems like about over a year. Over a year, yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about who have I talked about coffee the most in the last year, and I think I have it pretty figured out. I think you are number one, mostly via text. We text. We text a lot about (laughs) coffee. We do. Um, And then occasionally, I will. These are. It's like Christmas when this happens, but sometimes I'll get a text, and it's like I left you something on your porch, and I'm like. Nice. <laughs> and so then we talk a lot about the coffee that you will have just roasted. And sometimes it's kind of an experimental thing. We'll get into this. But I think my podium for people that I've talked the most about coffee in the last year, you were number one. Number two is probably Cody Townsend. And a lot of that conversation, I think we've actually recorded good chunks of that. But then, uh, and then number three, shout out to Babak Farzin, who is a Blister member. I like to accuse him of being pretty snobby when it comes to coffee. And uh, I think he'd be okay with that characterization because he is. But anyway, we have had so many conversations about coffee that I was like, let's just do this. Let's, Let's do a proper Gear 30 conversation 
dedicated to this drink we love. And um, so that is our objective for the day. Now, why don't we though get started with your background? And now I realize this in and of itself could you know, be a very long answer, but I think one of the reasons why we kind of hit it off in the first place is like, you are very much an outdoor person who has then gone deep into this world of making coffee drinks and roasting coffee. And so it's always fun when we get to talk because like I just said, I mean, we talk about skis or the outdoor industry for an hour and then we get talking about coffee. So that is a very long introduction. Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, background, I uh, came into rock climbing in college and immediately tried to get a job at the local gear store. The, the cool gear store wouldn't hire me, so I got a job at the less cool gear store and pretty much stayed in that world till about six years ago. So I worked for in shops, I worked as a buyer, I went to many ORs, and then I decided I wanted to get a real job in the outdoor industry and I went to Salt Lake and worked for Black Diamond for a while and then went to the Front Range and worked for La Sportiva for a while. And it was kind of running into the, as much as I like to talk about Italian crafted rock climbing shoes, it also, I was missing something, I guess you could say. And so had started drinking coffee, got fully addicted to coffee as an outward bound instructor. Uh-huh. Um, there's something about waking up before your kids that should or should not be there and uh, having a cup of coffee somewhere beautiful. And that's where it fully, that was my aha moment. And then uh, I was living in Boulder and was searching for the best beans to buy, to brew at home. And multiple people recommended this place called Boxcar. And I went in there, got a cappuccino and got my bag of beans. And it was the best drink I'd ever had. And then every time I went back, it didn't matter who was working the bar, I had the best cappuccino I had ever had. And I hadn't ever been to a coffee shop that way. There was so much variation in who was making your drink. So I applied for a job and I told him that I had waited tables, but I had never made coffee. I had done customer service, but I wanted to work somewhere where it seemed like everyone was trying to do the best they could every single time. And so I jumped in with both feet. Um, and then very quickly at Boxcar, uh, the coffee world, we might talk more about this, has a process called cupping. And it's where you're blind taste testing A, B coffees against each other to determine whether you're going to buy it, how you might roast it, those sort of things. And the owner comes out of the back with this cup and he was like, Sam, you have to taste this. And he was almost giddy with excitement. And I smelled it and I smelled it and I knew it was going to be the most, the best cup of coffee I'd ever had. Tasted it and it was blueberry to the face coffee. Uh, and that coffee was, a uh, hundred dollars a pound green so that would have been our cost as a roaster to buy this coffee and we had to buy the entire lot of it um and so we started scheming we were going to bring in a chef and like put it in each do a five course meal try and do it as a fundraiser and before we could get back to them it had sold uh but that was the moment where i was like okay coffee can be something else entirely and then boxcar is very um the owner is a buddhist and they're intentional about everything they do from where the espresso machine is sat to the order you make your drinks, partly to encourage that consistency, um, that every drink you get tastes the same every time. And so dove into the rabbit hole of 
roasting and extraction and grinding and latte art and also within all that hospitality and what does that look like true story when you just were saying when you tried this blueberry coffee and you were like i think many of us have a moment like i'm talking for coffee dorks or addicts i don't know whatever the right term is but i found myself saying this to you in this past year where i'm like this is not even coffee. Like this isn't, this almost isn't recognizable to me as the thing I have called coffee my whole life, right? And so I think that's been one of the really interesting things that credit where credit is due. Like literally that was you. And we'll, we'll talk a bit about, you know, different roasts and different types of coffee and the rest, but it sounds like that was kind of your, when you went in and had this $100 a pound, that's not even wholesale. That would be cost. Huh. Huh. So then there would be a wholesale price and then there would be a retail price on yeah. that. So yeah. It, uh, somebody in Japan bought it. Japan has a really amazing coffee scene. Huh. So shout out to all the listeners. Next time we get to go ski powder in Japan, go check out the coffee scene. Okay. Let's fast forward a little bit to then when you got to Crested Butte and what you've been doing here and where you're currently working. Yeah, so I uh, left Boxcar to go back to the mountains and went to Breckenridge, was working at a ski shop there, and then was thinking about opening my own coffee shop. I really missed coffee. I missed the community. And uh, the opportunity came to come and be the barista manager here at the Guild Cafe, which was a collaboration with First Ascent Coffee and Mountain Oven Bakery. And very early on, in that process, uh, I was helping with roasting. I was the barista manager, so trying to maintain that consistency for drinks to all our customers. Um, and also, we started on this project of trying to see if we could make an instant coffee that also tasted like the pour-overs we were making in our cafe. Got it. And while First Ascent these days, talk a little bit about the range of offerings at First Ascent. So at First Ascent now, we offer fresh roasted coffee that we roast twice a week here in Crested Butte, and we supply local cafes. We supply um, the local grocery store has our coffee in bulk, and then we do online orders, that both subscription and single options on our website. And then we also take then that same coffee, and right here in Crested Butte, we make it into instant coffee. And then we sell that instant coffee direct through our website, and then also through retail outlets across the state and beyond now. We're into Wyoming. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but let's stay with the instant coffee thing for a minute. And then we're going to get into all kinds of different roasts and like home equipment, which we've talked a lot about and the like, you know, I think for a lot of coffee drinkers, it's like instant coffee. That's that bad stuff that I try to avoid. Right. But it also turns out that if you are camping and you're looking for forms of coffee, instant can become pretty essential. Talk a little bit about what you think the kind of opportunities are for instant and like, what is the difference between a bad instant coffee and a better one? Yeah, the project started because we were carrying a French press into the backcountry and then dumping those wet grounds into a Ziploc bag and carrying it out with us. So suddenly your pack weighs more on the way out than it did on the way in because you're carrying wet coffee grounds. Or as an alpine climber, I was to the point where I wasn't even bringing coffee. I didn't have room in my pack. 
I would bring a caffeinated goo packet to start the day off and go. So that's where our envisioning came. We were like, we need coffee. Can we make it instant? And then the instant coffee world itself started with uh, actually our troops in World War One. That was when the genesis of instant coffee was we needed to provide American troops in the trenches with some form of caffeination. So that was kind of how instant coffee got started. I mean, globally, currently, instant coffee sales are over $9 billion a year. There are whole countries in the world that all they drink is instant coffee. Nescafe, you go to Central South America, some countries, your only option is instant coffee. So there is still this global market for it. As to why most of it doesn't taste very good, this is potentially a bigger conversation, but coffee is traded as a futures commodity on the New York Stock Exchange. So there's C-grade coffee is what it's called. And the entire global coffee industry, pricing, et cetera, is dominated by that. But that coffee is not what any of us in here, or probably most of our listeners, drink. But that coffee is grown and traded and sold all over the world. And that grade coffee, think of whiskey, wine, is graded on a number scale. And the coffee that most of us are drinking is going to score high 80s or higher. And this coffee is 50s, 60s. So we're starting with coffee that the green coffee, as it comes from the farm, based on how it's grown and then how it's processed, isn't that great to start with. And so then to... What about it isn't that great? Um, it's going to be varietal, for one. So we have kind of like, um, think of your tomatoes in the world. We have your beef steak, you have your Romas, and then we have all these heirloom tomatoes. C-grade coffee are going to be your, is a standard monocultured coffee around the world. Often coffee, unfortunately, from a production standpoint, coffee does not ripen all at the same time. And so good coffee is handpicked every day during the harvest season as it ripens. So if you get too much green coffee in with your ripe coffee, that's going to affect the flavor. And then the processing beyond that would be removing the coffee seed from inside the coffee fruit. And so all of that involves moisture and fermentation and if you're not monitoring and being careful that fermentation can take a negative turn and then also your kind of external additives for lack of a better word so um, imagine a big plantation where all of the coffee is being moved around by tractors you get gravel in there you get dirt in there you get diesel fumes in there all those sort of things can be in a c-grade huh. coffee so then uh, if you think of you've got this product that doesn't taste very good to begin with, and then a lot of that is sold instantly around the world. And then let's say it doesn't sell and it sits in a warehouse for a year or two. And then now you have a stale green coffee product that you need to do something with. And so often then that coffee is turned into instant coffee. So we're starting with a lower product. The easiest way to cover that, any negative tasting notes that might be in that older coffee is to just roast it really dark. So then you're tasting dark, roasty notes, charcoal, whatever you want to say burnt. in that burnt, yeah. um, which is what many of us taste in instant coffee or think of when we taste, think of instant coffee. 
And then the all instant coffee is freeze dried. The freeze drying process is taking brewed coffee, filtered coffee, so there shouldn't be any grounds in it. Um, think of Kool-Aid or Tang, like you'd have a powder, the more powder you add to it, the stronger it gets. Coffee is that we drink, whether it's espresso, that's going to have more dissolved coffee in it or a drip cup of coffee. It's going to have less dissolved coffee in it, but there are dissolved solids. And then the freeze drying process removes that moisture and you're left with those previously dissolved solids. The freeze drying process is very energy intensive and time intensive. And so many companies, uh, many freeze drying processes actually brew, take that brewed coffee and boil it down to a sludge before they put it into the freeze dryer. So you can imagine if you took your French press and put it on the fire and just boiled it and boiled it and boiled it, it would taste terrible before you ever put it in the freeze dryer. So we would call that over-extracted coffee. Over-extracted coffee tends to be bitter. Bitter is the tasting note that we pick up on for over-extracted coffee. So most people find instant coffee to taste burnt and over-extracted. First Ascent and other brands out there, Swift Cup being the main one, um, we are taking the same specialty grade coffee that all of us are taking and making a pour over out of or making espresso out of at home or AeroPress, whatever it is, your favorite coffee at that same roast level. So the same flavor notes that you'd be picking up on. And then we're brewing that. In our case, we're using scales and timers, just like people do at home with their pour over. We're just doing it on a much bigger scale and taking that coffee at the right time, chill it, and we put it in the freeze dryer as liquid that tastes good. Um, and we taste every batch as it goes in the freeze dryer. The total dissolved solid in that uh, brew that we're putting in the co- in the freeze dryer is weak espresso. Um, based on a number, there's a formula. We have a device that measures that by a percentage of dissolved solids. And so we track that so we maintain consistency as well as flavor. And then the freeze drying process, yeah, that removes the water and we're left behind with a powder that dissolves in hot or cold liquid, you know, we're either one just as well. Yeah. It takes a little long, a few extra stirs in the cold, um, but it dissolves in there just fine. And so, yeah, we're marketing it for that camping person because that's usually the most open person to trying it. And then, you know, we get people who have babies and they're like, I make a cup of instant when I don't want to wake the baby by turning on the grinder Um, to the traveler. All you need is a cup of hot water, which every gas station has the airport. You walk up and you can even give them a mug and they'll fill it with hot water. So yeah, it's been a really fun project. It's been a challenging project. Yeah. But the demand is there and we're growing. So that's fun. This is actually interesting. I think, well, one, I haven't been traveling that much in the last year and a half. But thinking about like the early days of Blister where I was ping pong balling between Taos and Alta a lot. And, you know, my background years and years ago, I probably was that person who was dumping a lot of other stuff in my coffee, you know? And and so you got me now thinking about just road trips. And I'd be like, fine, I don't care. Just give me the, you know, the like the glass pot with the orange or black handle, whatever, just dump it in there. And, but I, I stopped putting anything in my coffee. I don't, I mean, probably 
well over eight years ago, I guess. And so now, like I just I will buy energy drinks in gas stations. I won't I won't buy coffee anymore. So this is actually where if life continues to open up and stay away COVID, if we get back into the road trip stuff, this is the best case you're currently making for me actually for the instant stuff. We were also talking, I've, <laughs> I've been camping a lot less because Blister has had me rather busy, you know, for like the last 10 years. And um, so like that right now isn't like, oh, I'm constantly out, you know, but the, but the road trip scenario, um, this would be the way that maybe I start actually drinking coffee again on the road. Yeah. No, I'm, it's funny because I am the same way on a road trip. If I don't have my coffee uh, and I need the, the driving pick me up, yeah. it's an energy drink because I know what I'm getting out of it. I know what it's going to taste like. So yeah, that's funny. We both ended up there. Yeah. I think the one other interesting thing about a, a quality instant coffee, no matter who it's coming from, is we've taken care of the brewing so if you think about a bad espresso shot or a French press that you left on the counter and forgot about and come back to it and you're like, oh God, I can't drink that. I yeah. got to make another one. We've taken care of that. So as long as you get the ratio right of how weak or strong you like it, it shouldn't be bitter. It shouldn't be acidic. It shouldn't be sour. And that should be across the board from any brand of good instant coffee that's out there now. And I think that's can also be appealing to people if they don't want to get their scale out and mess with their grinder and that sort of thing. It's like, as long as you put eight ounces of water or if you like it stronger or weaker, put that amount of liquid in there and add the instant, you should have a perfectly brewed cup of coffee every time. And since it's already brewed, we don't have to worry as much about what's the temperature of the water. Did we get it hot enough to brew it well or? Well, yeah, where do we want to go with brewing coffee. But I think going back to the instant, yes, I will often at home, if I'm running out for a dawn patrol, for instance, I'm going to look at the thermometer on my kettle. And when it hits 150, I know that's a perfect drinking temperature. I can pour it in my Yeti, drive up here to go skin up the mountain. And I can drink that cup of coffee the whole drive here, rather than having it sit in my coffee mug too hot to actually drink. <laughs> which you need to do if you're actually brewing the coffee. Yeah. To right, get it hot enough. Right, yeah. Right. Um, and now I remember you saying that to me a while ago, like that, hence why you can put lukewarm water in there. If you feel like it, cold water, go cold brew that way, quote unquote, cold brew that way or whatever. So we're taking that variable out of the, the brewing process. Correct. Cause it's brewed. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, cold, one of my favorite things is some sort of recovery powder with our coffee mixed in you know, whether it's scratch or tailwind or something like that, after a big workout, some sort of chocolate recovery drink, add our instant coffee, shake huh. it up with ice. And suddenly I have a afternoon, almost milkshake that also gives me caffeine to then go work. Huh? I kind of want to try that. Um, <laughs> more ways to ingest and imbibe caffeine. Cool. I have not yet tried, though it has been mentioned, putting the instant coffee in my lip and letting it dissolve and seeing what that does. Like a dip? <laughs> like a dip. Wow. Several people have asked, they're like, you know, you could just put it in your lip and it would just like, I'm like, I don't know if I would like that and I don't think my dentist would like that. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe if you were desperate <laughs> the next time you see me i'm just gonna have you know big big pouch wow i did not see us going there okay washed versus natural so as i mentioned earlier coffee is 
a fruit with a seed or a nut, I guess seed's probably a better word for it, inside of the, that fruit. We refer to the fruit as the coffee cherry and then the coffee bean is what we're all used to seeing in the roasted form. You have to separate those two. And so a natural processed coffee is generally done in places of the world where they have le- access to less water. And so the cherry is removed mechanically from the seed after it's sat out in the sun for a while. So they put it on these raised beds or concrete patios and they rake it every day, multiple times a day. And you can imagine sitting out in the sun with a fruit, a sweet fruit around a coffee bean, it soaks up the fruit notes that are within that coffee cherry. And so this is where we get those heavy blueberry notes that I was talking about before. Strawberry, a lot of people love Ethiopian coffee and Jonathan loves Ethiopia coffee. Most Ethiopian naturals, we're going to get berry notes, strawberry, raspberry, that sort of thing. That's coming from that process. Some people don't like that. They taste that that berry note. They taste some added acidity to it, and that's not what they associate with coffee. They're also, if you're not taking care of that coffee while it's out drying, it will ferment and will ferment potentially negatively. And so we will sometimes, when we're doing that cupping process that we talked about, we'll taste a coffee that we say tastes boozy, or I've tasted coffees that straight up tasted like a sour beer where that it over fermented, at least in our opinion or my opinion. And then that process, they run it through and it's much easier to remove the coffee cherry because it's all dried, cracked. And they run it through a machine with kind of a bunch of fingers, pulls that off and then they can run it. They still rinse it, but it requires much, much less water in the long run. And then your washed process is that coffee gets pulled off the tree, immediately put into water where it soaks up the, think of when you sit in a hot tub too long, you get all pruney, the coffee cherry does that, then it's run through that same mechanical, pulls the coffee cherry off very quickly, and then it's dried out in the sun. And those coffees are gonna be much, we call it cleaner. There is less of that fruity, fermented note going on in there. Those are your classic Central American coffees, even South American coffees that people taste really smooth, nutty notes, um, those sort of things are going to come from a washed processed coffee. Okay. You can call me out here if you don't like what I'm about to say. Having had multiple times the first ascent Ethiopian natural and the first ascent Ethiopian washed, I'd say there's more similarity than difference. Like I don't, I don't see those as being like, radically different. I mean, way more similar in terms of natural versus washed process. If we went to jump to like hero day or something like that's a profoundly different taste. You agree with this or is this me being too much of a, and that's going to be more a result of the roasting. Okay. So if you are taking say an Ethiopian natural versus a Ethiopian washed and roast them in a similar fashion, we're going to keep more of a similarity in the process. And I think if you were to taste them blind side by side on a table, it would be immediately obvious that they're different. I'm not saying I can't tell a difference. I like both. Like I, I just, if I'm listening to this conversation 
and somebody's driving along and they're like, wait, so I would expect this natural to taste really radically different than washed. I would say, no, I don't see it as a radical difference. It's different. And I can definitely tell a difference. You, when you ask me this all the time, I'm like, I don't actually know which I prefer. I also think that at some level, we're going to have a listener or a coffee drinker who they will tell me, I like a fruit bomb. Huh? If you like a fruit bomb, mm-hmm. go natural. Uh-huh. Um, and also the more, the higher the score, we were talking about that number score of the coffee, the higher the score, the more dramatic those differences are going to be, particularly on the natural side of things. It's going to be ex- much more obvious, dramatic, tart, sometimes even like I've tasted some coffees where it was like lemon drop warhead was mm-hmm. like a tasting note that you're getting in there. Like wine, like whiskey, the higher the number, the more expensive it is. Um, you know, and that Columbia that you're drinking right now is a very high scoring coffee and a very expensive coffee. Um, but it also has some of the most bright fruit forward yeah. notes I've ever tasted. Yeah. And I think my text to you was that Columbia, it's like coffee and tea had a baby. Yep. I think I said love child actually, but, uh, and that's, what's so interesting that, that, um, and even the Ethiopians, that's where I was like, I haven't had coffee like this before, you know, and it is so bright and kind of fruit forward to be honest. It's actually made me a lot more interested in tea. Oh yeah. I right. Like, yeah. Cause it's like, it is moving that way, but they are, so we're talking about first descent natural and first descent washed. Again, they're not the same, but they're playing in a ballpark. And I was saying to you, I think that Colombian is also at least in that similar ballpark. And I, it's my new favorite coffee. Like when I can, I mean, I can still drink medium, darker roasts, but this is now where I like to hang out, you know? And it's so funny when I send you these texts, I'm like, <laughs> I'm always like, I wonder if I'm about to get torn apart here as just being like, you're clearly a moron, but you have, you're either too nice, but you've yet to sort of say like, I think you're kind of way off here. I mean, I think first off is I want pe- if people enjoy their coffee experience, that's the best, you know, that's what I want. And so, yeah, we do sometimes bring in single origin coffees that will roast lighter that we will call a gateway light roast. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we want to transition you from a dark or a medium to a light roast, but it's not going to have strong notes of this or that. It's just going to be a smooth, easy drinking cup of coffee where you're like, oh, okay, I could drink this. I think going back to the natural and the washed, there is some really cool stuff happening in that Colombian farm where they're starting to realize that the sugar content within that coffee cherry affects the end result. And so they're measuring the sugar content of the coffee cherry. And based on the sugar content, they're deciding whether to make it a washed coffee or a natural coffee. And the same farm is taking the same plantation and sw- and mixing up their processing methods based on the end result. So we've brought in coffee from the same farm, same year that's been processed washed and been processed natural. And you have two very different experiences coming from the same farm. That's just based on the sugar in the coffee cherry. So the higher the sugar content in the cherry, that means we would steer it toward washed. Toward washed. Because yep. the 
challenge is too much sugar leads to over fermentation in the drying process of a natural coffee. Got it. But then those washed coffees come out clean and sweet naturally. Are we ready to talk about roasting? I think so. Because okay. I think now we're talking about you like those coffees, whether it's the Ethiopia washed or natural yeah. versus the Hero Day, which interestingly, that was the coffee that got you drinking our coffee. That's right. And it was pre-ground. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Because well, that's what it was. I forgot the story. We were finishing one of our monster buyer's guides and I was completely out of coffee and probably on a two to three hour a night sleep schedule. And I ran up to, I think the store mm -hmm. here in Mount CB and it was just like, that's what they had. And I'm like, cool. I just, I need a bag that has, you know, a form of caffeine in it. That's kind of that you're right. I forgot that, but that was out of a, a like, I'm out of coffee at a time when I cannot, cannot be out of coffee. And so, yeah, started with the hero day and really liked it. And then you started you know, like the drug dealer you are <laughs> sort of like, if you like that, check out this other stuff. And now I've, I have just kind of moved to like, and another thing we should say, and you have talked about this, possibly part of the reason that I really like these light roasts is again, I drink coffee black. I don't put anything in it. Maybe you can speak to that for a minute before we start going more into the roast stuff. I also think roast will kind of play into that and, and, why we choose to roast coffee the way we do is influenced by how we think that coffee is going to be drank by the consumer. And so these lighter roasts are generally more expensive. We're highlighting the country it comes from and we're putting tasting notes on there. And so we're going to roast that coffee. The roast profile for coffee like that is going to be quicker and also not as hot in the end. So a lighter roast means we don't take it to a, as high a temperature coffee roasting. Maybe we should back up a little bit. There's not a lot of variables. So the roaster is a big rotating drum with paddles in it. The, there is a big multi jetted natural gas burner underneath of it. And then there's think of it as a damper on your fireplace. So I can close the damper and trap the air inside while the coffee is roasting, or I can open that damper all the way up and the air is just moving through the roaster and out. So how much gas I'm giving it, what the airflow is and over time, those are my variables when I'm roasting coffee. And so the medium roast our hero day blend, which is our still our most popular coffee. We're going for, smooth. We're going for a coffee that will hold up if you put some milk or cream in it or sugar, but it's also a coffee that still has some interesting flavor notes going on if you drink it black. And it also will be for someone like you or I, who's used to now drinking lighter roasted coffees, we're going to drink it and it might be a little darker than we're used to or yeah. we like, but it's not going to be offensive to us. And on the same note, somebody who's used to drinking a dark roast from their local coffee shop will drink Hero Day and it will be dark enough that they'll find something interesting in it as well. And so to get that, we're roasting that coffee a little slower. So we're highlighting the caramelization of the sugars that are already in it. We're keeping some of that air inside the drum while it's roasting to give it a little smokiness, a little dark chocolate action going on. Um, and then 
but then we're dropping it out of the roaster and cooling it before it gets too dark, before we get into those really dark flavor profiles. A lighter roast coffee like you or I like, we're going to get it hot quickly, keep it hot, and then dump it out of the roaster very quickly. And so the thought process on that is if you think about the IPA world right now, we have all these beers that have crazy tasting notes that are purely a result of the hop varietal. They're not adding anything to them. You know, there are some additive IPAs, but a lot of these IPAs you're tasting, whether you're tasting an herbal one, kind of a piney one or a fruity one, that's a result of that hop varietal. And so we're trying to do the same thing in our light roast as we roast it fast, where you're picking up more on that kind of local influence under that coffee, kind of like wine grapes have that you can tell when you taste this coffee, you know, I'm at the point where I can tell you continent, generally speaking, when I taste a coffee blind, if it's been light roasted well, I can tell you Central America, South America, African, just like wine sommeliers, there are coffee cue graders, they're called, that can taste a cup of coffee and tell you country elevation processing method, those kind of things. What are they called? Q graders? Yeah. They're the ones who determine that number grade for the coffee we were talking about. So they taste coffee and are like, this is an 85 or this is a 95, you know, and then that determines the price that they can set for it at auction. But we don't still call them sommeliers. No, no, that's... They're called Q graders? Q graders. Man, if you're that good... You know, like yeah. if you're really good at this in the wine world versus being really good at this in the coffee world, you get a much cooler name in the wine world. Yeah, a Q grader. And it's interesting because they say there are people who are both. Huh. Um, wow. And they say wine has around 200 potential tasting notes you could pick up on. Coffee has around 2,000. So to learn that coffee world at that level, um, mad respect to those people. So, and then our dark roast, that was kind of actually a result of COVID, people being stuck at home, um, and also our friends talking to us, our friends who like the, say, the keto kind of coffee to start your day where they're putting coconut oil, MCT oil, uh, high fat. There are people who put butter in their coffee. Um, And even our hero day was kind of getting lost within all those additives. And so, or you just like a dark, strong, you know, strong is actually refers to brewing. So how many, how much dissolved solids are in there? Um, But they like that dark, robust flavor profile from a, a dark roast. And so we played around with dark roast for probably 15 or 20 roasts. And, and tasted them and we like this, we don't like this. Um, and I actually like our dark roast. I think on, it's not my everyday drinker, but on espresso, it tastes like rich dark chocolate. And if you're mixing it with the milk or with some milk and maple syrup, something like that, it is an excellent coffee. This is Dawn Patrol? Dawn Patrol. But you guys were making Dawn Patrol before COVID. No. Is that right? Yeah. Huh. Hero Day. We had Hero Day. Yeah. The light roasts, we get them hot fast, keep it hot, and then dump it out of the coffee roaster so that we highlight those tasting notes. The hero day, keep it in there a little longer, slowly caramelize the sugars, and then drop it out hotter. And then the Dawn Patrol, we're taking even hotter, so we're taking it darker, but we actually are taking it darker faster. 
with the thought process being that we can still keep some of those interesting flavor notes that are in there, but also have some darkness going on. So when you taste it, I think we get really great dark chocolate and not so much charcoal. That's kind of. I've waited like 45 minutes now to say this. (laughs) I kind of want to talk some crap about dark roast. Not really because I'll, I'll kind of out myself here in a second, but I want to make some analogies here. We already talked about hoppy beers, right? And so dark roasting is kind of like those beers where we're just dumping as many hops as possible into a beer. It is also kind of like hot sauce. Hops and hot sauce can cover a multitude of mistakes. That's dark roasting. This is me subtly trying to take a shot at Cody because Cody, I think his go-to every day is a Stumptown dark roast. I've actually never had it. It's, I'm sure it's maybe very good. But is it, or is this the equivalent of people who order like well-done steaks, right? You know how like we look down on people who do that. And yet, and in the beer world, I thought it was really fascinating when I learned that like master brewers really care if you can make a good Pilsner. Pilsner. Whereas like Pilsners, I'm always like, that's the most boring beer out there. And it's like, yeah, but I can tell if you're actually good at this because you don't get to just cover up, put hot sauce, right? Hot sauce, AKA lots of hops, AKA dark roast, AKA burned coffee. So talk to me a little bit about that. Like, or how would you say one makes a really good dark roast as to just moving into the terrible world of like a overly cooked steak or a burned coffee. So we'll go several, (laughs) there's several things to talk about there. Um, I think the first thing to acknowledge here is coffee culture as we now know it and, and enjoy around the world. Now we wouldn't be there without Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah. That is a reality. When Starbucks came on the scene, Starbucks started talking about origin notes. They started talking about where the coffee was from and made you care about your coffee. But then Starbucks kept opening stores and growing. And also more and more people started beyond our grandparents started drinking coffee. They'd go out with their friends and have a coffee. They'd taste a black cup of coffee. They're like, I don't like that. And Starbucks is like, well, fine. I have a pumpkin spice latte for you. It doesn't taste like coffee at all. Mm Mm-hmm. You and I have talked about this. That is a entire world of the coffee world. And if you were to take our hero day, any of our light roasts, potentially even our Dawn Patrol and make a 20 something ounce drink with a bunch of flavoring in it and a bunch of milk, you would not know there was coffee in there. So somebody would bring that drink back to you and be like, did you f- remember the espresso shot in here? And you're like, yeah, it's in there, but it's so light. You can't it's taste it over everything. 40 grams of sugar. Right. Yeah. So that is, that's one element. And then also a lighter roast, whether it's espresso or a pour over is easier to mess up the brewing process. So if you don't get your ratio, right, if you don't get your rate of flow, whatever it might be, you're going to taste potentially negative tasting notes in there. Whereas a super dark roast shot, you're always going to taste charcoal, coffee, dark coffee flavors in there. And so from a perspective of does your employee care, your airport Starbucks where you're just trying to get somebody in there to make a coffee drink, a dark roast is going to be more consistent. 
across the board. And again, you accept then the beer analogy. So light roast generally, or maybe always, is kind of the pilsner. Yeah. Whereas if we get a batch of beer and maybe it's an not, unfiltered hazy IPA, you can hide anything. a multitude of things and then you may not feel very good the next day, um, even from it. So the other thing we talked about quality of coffee. I talked about potentially stale coffee yeah. earlier. Um, a lot of folks don't realize whether it's your green coffee or even roasted coffee, it does go stale. And so going back to Ethiopia right now, we're out of Ethiopia coffee. We buy fresh crop coffee and we roast it. And when it's gone from the warehouse, it's gone till next year. Um, think of the farmer's market and yep. start of the year, we get greens. And by the end of the year, we're getting root vegetables and tomatoes. So, but around the world, there's a lot of coffee that doesn't get bought and roasted while it's still fresh. And so one way to cover that is to roast it dark. So I don't know if you've ever picked up on a flavor profile. We think of it as like wet hay, wet cardboard, wet newspaper. Um, now that I've ruined your mind, next time you're like at a gas station, if you get a cup of coffee, you'll probably pick up on that. That flavor profile is green coffee that is stale and old before it's roasted. So that would be another reason that people would roast it dark. And then the final thing, and this could actually be a good segue into extraction and brewing at altitude, many, many mountain coffee shops have dark roast. That's what they do. Um, and besides the vanilla latte aspect of that, of wanting the coffee to come through, there's also the reality that coffee extraction removing those solids from the bean happens best between 195 Fahrenheit and 205 Fahrenheit. And this is why if you go to a brewing guide from any of our major West coast coffee roasters, they're going to tell you to bring the water to a boil and then let it sit for a few minutes because we don't want it to be 212, which is boiling at sea level. But up here we're right at 195 ish depending on where you're, whether you're in town or up here on the mountain you're, so where where you're roasting first ascent coffee that's probably at about 8900 feet eight, yep yeah yep 8880 yeah 8880 yeah yeah okay just to give people yeah so if your water's not hot enough going through your beans whether it's an espresso shot or whether it's a pour over or your brewed cup of coffee your brewed coffee maker that tasting note is going to be, we're going to call that sour. So we, earlier we mentioned bitter for an over-extracted cup of coffee. Sour would be the opposite side of that spectrum. But most coffee drinkers don't have that vocabulary, so they call it acidic. Um, they're going to say that coffee was acidic. And at altitude, a coffee brewer, even if your boiling temperature is 195, you can't set it at 195 because then you get steam coming out instead of water. So then you're down at like 182, 183 to have hot water coming through. And there are ways to compensate for that. But if you're not aware of that, the first thing that you're going to do is roast it darker to cover the acidic or sour notes coming out of the coffee. So in your mountain town coffee shop, that's, I think, probably the single biggest reason that dark roasts are so popular and why there's so many of them to mask mistakes or to try to circumvent the inherent difficulties? I think it's, it's more to circumvent the difficulties of brewing at altitude. 
So you just said very well, I think, the issues of brewing at altitude. Is there something different on the roasting front? Not really. Um, I think from what I can tell, you know, there is moisture in the coffee bean and the roasting process draws a lot of that moisture out. We actually have first crack, second crack. We don't get into third crack on any of our roasts, but the cracking is the beans are inside the roaster. It's tumbling and all of a sudden it sounds like popcorn in the microwave. And that process is a round of moisture leaving the beans and the steam is coming out inside the, the coffee roaster. So that process, because just like baking at altitude, you know, we are in some ways baking the coffee bean, that process happens a little quicker, but as to negative or positive it, I was talking to somebody today from LA about how I like to, when I go to a bigger city, get a cup of coffee from a well-known roaster there that we like to think we're in the same ballpark as and tasting their coffee. And usually we stack right up there with them from a tasting perspective. So I don't think it's as much a negative of roasting up here as much as it is just adjusting your recipe to roasting at altitude. Okay. Where should we go from here? Probably extraction, also known as brewing. You know, all of our brewing methods are some form of extracting solids out of that coffee bean. And so I mentioned, I was talking about water temperature, but, you know, we would want to start going back to the grinding aspect of that. And I don't, how much have you and Cody talked about grinding? Not very much. Okay. Like at all. Okay. I don't think. I mean, we've obviously talked about our mocha masters and Euras. Let's talk. Are we talking grinders now? I think let's start with the basics of grinding and then we'll get to grinders. Okay. Um, so if you think about a bucket or a kiddie pool filled with sand versus some river rock and you pour water through it, it would filter through the river rock much quicker than it's going to filter through the sand. On the same token, if you were to take that kiddie pool full of sand and put an island of river rock in the middle of it and quickly fill it with water, it would drain through the river rock quicker than it would through the sand on the outside. So the first thing we want to do is make sure that our grind size is consistent so that the water flows through at an even rate and extracts from all those coffee grounds together. So you can imagine if you got really chunky size and really fine size and put that in your espresso machine, that pressure is going to find the weakness and it's going to over extract from those beans and you're going to have a lot of beans around the side that aren't extracted at all. Same thing will happen in your pour over. Same thing can even happen in a French press where you're immersion brewing, but the little fine grinds are getting extracted at a different rate than the larger grind sizes. So all of your brewing methods are going to have a different grind setting. This does confuse people sometimes on our website. Um, as a barista, every morning when I came in, depending on atmospheric pressure and how far off of roast my, the coffee was in my hopper, I adjusted my grind size and then the uh, amount every day to make the best tasting shot possible. So grinders, most folks, if they're familiar with the type of coffee you and I are talking about, are going to be aware of a burr grinder. $29.99 target grinder that we all have seen is what we call a blade grinder. And anyone who's ever used one knows when you pull that lid off and look down in there, you're going to see coffee particles of all different sizes. So 
not recommended works in a pinch. Uh, I actually tell most folks who have a coffee subscription with us, you know, if you're ordering coffee regularly, let us grind it with our $7,000 grinder and send it to you and you'll get much better shots, even though you're not grinding it every day fresh, it's still going to taste better because you're going to get a consistent result out of it. Okay. So wait, that's one interesting thing. You would rather have a consistent size grind than the rule that many of us have heard is like, don't grind your coffee on until like within 15 minutes of brewing. You think consistency is more important than that time. Depending on how fresh it is. Okay. I wouldn't go to Whole Foods and buy a bag of pre-ground coffee. Right. Because I don't know how long it took to get from the roaster to the warehouse to Whole Foods to get on the shelf for me to buy it. But if you're a mail order customer where I'm shipping you coffee via priority mail and it gets there in two to three days and you're going to drink it within a week, I think you're going to get a much more consistent and even good tasting cup of coffee if I grind it for you versus a blade grinder. Okay. Versus a blade. But I mean, a person can buy a conical burr grinder for 150 bucks these days. Correct. So your $7,000 grinder versus a conical burr grinder. I'm just curious about consistency of grind size versus the time element. I think that a $130 grinder is going to give you a great tasting cup of coffee. Okay. Um, you know, biggest differences are going to be how often you need to replace that grinder. So those yeah. burrs are going to wear out faster than the grinder I have. And then quantity. I can grind five pounds of coffee in my burr grinder in a couple minutes. You know, yeah. you're doing that in your little $130 <laughs> grinder, you'd be there a while. Yeah. So, but if you're making a couple, you know, one to four or five cups of coffee a day through your personal grinder, yeah, that Baratza Encore is kind of the entry level. And then, you know, there are actually some really cool grinders coming out now um, mm. in that $300 range mm. for that person who really wants to nerd out on brewing their coffee. But yeah, no, that Baratza, um, I'll give a shout out, Seattle Coffee Gear. Yeah, They have a great interface of their staff doing video reviews of grinders and talking about what they like, what they don't like, what they would do as a professional versus what they would do as an at-home grinder. Um, also for espresso machines, they do the same thing. So pretty good resource for the person out there who may not have access to a coffee shop with a barista that wants to talk to them about brewing at home. Okay, where do we need to go next? So I think we'll talk about brewing generally. Okay. I will give you a link to... There's a roaster called Pilot Roasters that have this really great, think of a pie chart for roast, for brewing, for all extraction methods. They have them for espresso, drip coffee, and then for immersion brewing, which would be like a French press. So if you think of a pie cut into quarters, we have left and right are going to be sour and bitter, like we talked about, and then up and down are going to be weak or strong. And then within that will be how you adjust your brew. So the center is what we're going for. We're going for a nice, it's not weak, it's not strong, not bitter, not sour. And so generally speaking, 
bitter and sour are going to be over extracted under extracted which is almost always a function of your grind size so if it's bitter you have over extracted so it's either sat too long or your grind size is too fine so if you have a french press that's coming out bitter and you're only brewing it at four minutes make your grind size coarser the reverse is true most people end up with that sour or acidic coffee whether it's in their pour over whether it's in their french press and that's an issue of not grinding their coffee fine enough particularly at altitude so we talked a little bit earlier about boiling temperature one of the ways to compensate for that is to go with a finer grind mm. and then also keep your water hot so my little kettle when i make my pour over every morning once it boils, I set the stove on low so it's simmering so that each time I'm pouring water into my pour over, I'm pouring still boiling water in there. The other thing that will happen that you can adjust, whether it's your pour over or even your espresso machine, French press is dose or bed surface. So you can think about in your pour over, the more coffee you put in there, the deeper the bed surface is and the longer the water is going to take to filter through that. And so adjusting your grind size and your dose or your bed surface are going to kind of be the two things that you can adjust to get that perfect cup of coffee. Um, I do find often going back to dark roast, going back to coffee shops, most folks in their brewed coffee maker, the big coffee pot behind the counter where they're dumping coffee in. I don't know whether it's haven't been paying attention or trying to save money, but the coffee coming out of there is often very weak. Mm -hmm. And so again, if you're not putting a lot of grounds in there, mi minimal bed surface, going with a darker roasted coffee gives you tasting notes of coffee huh. while you're saving money huh. or not overflowing your brewing machine, those sort of things. So yeah, those are kind of the basics. We could obviously dive into all the different brewing methods, but I think putting in the show notes that brewing guide, I use it with all my baristas. I send it to customers on the regular who ask. Um, it's a pretty cool chart. Yeah. I do want to talk a bit about some methods, right? I think I, you know, affectionately like to call them, you know, coffee snobs. They seem, first of all, Shout out to Bobak Farzin, who will, will be like just uh, floored that we didn't talk about hand grinders because he is convinced that you are a complete Philistine if you're not using a hand grinder. But it seems like coffee snobs in general are convinced that pour over is the superior method you see this agree with this generalization or characterization and if so like why i think that is generally accepted um and i think that's going to go back to that idea of highlighting tasting notes and origin notes so the first reason would be the paper filter does create a cleaner crisper cup of coffee that allows you to taste maybe the nuance of the hibiscus flower that's in there or whatever it might be a french press with kind of that sludgy element that you're getting out of it is almost like a dark stout like you know it's rich it's full-bodied but you're not picking up on a nuanced hop varietal in there um, so i think that would be why and then i think personally whether it's a chemex or whether it's 
the Kalita wave is the pour over I use. It's the pour over my part business partners use. We have one in our roasting facility. Um, consistency. We're able to get, as long as you put the same, you know, we do weigh our grounds and our coffee or our water going in and time it, what we're doing, we're getting a darn consistent cup day in and day out. Um, and you know, I was applying those same methods over the years to a French press, to an aero press and some days I would get a great one and some days I wouldn't get such a good one. And for us generally, I would say we've come to the conclusion that the pour over gives us the most consistent cup of coffee. So I think shout out to Bobek. Bobek. Shout out to Bobek. You know, you and I didn't really go there, but I've been reading a lot this summer about particle size and, and then particle size distribution. So we talked about a, conical burr grinder and they're actually using microns uh, measuring devices to measure the size of ground coffee and then the spread coming out of the grinder so what's your min what's your max and where does the mean fall like how many are you getting within a size Um, and the challenge for most hand grinders is going to be the spread and the amount of fines we call them fine. So really, really fine stuff that you get out of there. Um, and basically whether you're looking at that $130 grinder, a Barazza, um, or Hario hand grinder, the more expensive, the more tight that spread is going to be. And so you get a more consistent, again, going back to consistency. Yeah. Um, there is a little device that you can buy that, uh, C U V E is the brand cuvee. Um, and it's a sifter. It's a plastic sifter. Oh man. And you put your coffee, your ground coffee in it, it has a top and a bottom and you just shake it and you shake it and you shake it till you get the medium coffee and you pull the fines out. And, uh, that will give you an amazing pour over, but you're also multiple minutes after you've ground it, that you're shaking this thing just to get the coffee to put into your pour over. I do it every now and again, like this Columbia that we got, I made it with that. And that was where it, those tasting notes really came out vibrant, but it's still an amazing cup of coffee without. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about coffee and these different brewing processes is we all have different things that we're going for, right? And so, you know, for me, I wake up every morning and make a pot of coffee every morning. And so like, because of that, whereas somebody else is like, I don't know, actually gets enough sleep and that type of thing. So if it's like somebody who wants to have one cup of coffee and that's what they do in the morning, well, now I can understand going with a pour over or a haro or something like no way does that work for my (laughs) current lifestyle. And so, and then the other thing I think is really interesting is just what's your budget, right? And I think for, you know, there are passionate AeroPress devotees, right? And one of the things I think is really cool about coffee is if you're like, I am a broke student or a dirtbag climber, you can actually make coffee in ways that don't, you know, like you can get it done in a, in a quote unquote good way for cheaper or more expensive um, 
well, through cheaper or more expensive processes. Whereas I'm not really sure that's true of like wine, right? Right. And so I think that's actually a pretty cool thing. And so, yeah, you've got, you know, you walk it to our friends at Buena Vista Bike Company who have their whatever, I forget, $11,000 or $20,000 espresso machine. And I'm afraid to look at that thing the wrong way, you know? But it's like somebody who wants to just roll with an AeroPress, if you do it, the right way, you can actually do it well. And I like that. It makes coffee seem sort of democratic to me. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that too, like the universality of it, you know, even those little plastic V-shaped pour overs. The Haros, it's, uh, six, you know, they, 60 bucks, right? Yeah. The Kalita that I use is about 60 bucks huh. and it's metal. And, okay. you know, that was one reason I switched to it because I broke a couple ceramic pour overs. Um, and this one's stainless steel, so I'm not, I take it to the desert and drop it on the sandstone in Moab and it's not going to break. And you don't notice any taste difference between say a plastic or ceramic or a, or a metal? I don't, you know, clean it. I rinse, I put the filter in every and rinse the filter every yeah. time. Um, and so that's where I would taste something sometimes is the paper if I haven't rinsed it properly. But no, I think, uh, it is really cool. And I mean, the, there are the AeroPress world championships right. happen, you know, and you can get on YouTube and find recipes and I've tested them. And I think people are doing really cool, innovative things there, just like they are with pour overs and people are twice grinding their coffee. Now that's another thing where you, so let's say you want to really fine grind ultimately, but that process of taking a bean from full bean to a tiny fine grind you're kind of exploding the bean in the grinder. So they're putting it in at the most coarse setting to give it a more gentle grind and then taking that coarse ground coffee and putting it back through a grinder with a finer grind setting. Um, yeah, I think it's also the cool thing is once you get a roasted bag of beans, it's, it's pretty cheap to experiment whether it's grind setting, whether it's dose size, whether it's time, how much water or going from an AeroPress to a pour over to a French press, you can experiment with all of those with a $14 bag of beans and come up with your favorite method. Whereas wine, you just got to buy bottles of wine and decide if you like it or yeah. not. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's a really cool aspect to coffee. And then around the world, there are, hundreds of millions of us who like it yeah. and it's a ritual and a community that we have together. So I'm guessing that you would say for that person who's like, I'm thinking about, you know, students right now, it's like, Hey, that's great. You guys have had a really fancy conversation and you're talking about $300 grinders and the like, you would say for somebody who's like, well, I'd like to better understand. Well, first of all, one, this is the thing I love, whether we're talking about coffee, whether we're talking about tea, whether we're talking about wine or whiskey, the processes. Like I think understanding how these things are made in the process is just super interesting. And, um, you know, uh, probably, I mean, that's why we're kind of doing it on a gear 30 podcast. It's like, let's dive into the details and try to understand and better appreciate all the things that go into thinking about, you know, what ends up in a little bag on a shelf or when you do roll into the airport and ask for a cup of coffee, 
it's like you've you've done a nice job of spelling out like all the different things to think about and the steps that are required and to to do something well in this world um it actually turns out to be a bit of an achievement i would say this exact same thing about wine yeah but i like the idea of you know helping somebody along who's like that's great but i don't have a lot of dough for this it sounds like well let me not put words in your mouth where would you say spend your dough here and save money in these other respects right what's the what's the most budget oriented way to actually end up with good tasting coffee i think the budget would be to get a pour over coffee maker that accepts those number 4 paper filters that are in the shelf at every grocery store yeah. in the coffee section. Um, and then you're not having, you know, the downside to the Kalita I have or the Hario V60 is you have to go then find specific filters to that brewer. And COVID actually made it really hard to find filters for yeah. those things for a while. So get a pour over that has that. And then, you know, that's going to run you 30 to $40. Those filters are like $4 for a hundred of them. Yeah. And then, if you go, if you're going to college, that means you're somewhere with a coffee roaster. There's going to be a coffee roaster in your town and, and go in there and establish a relationship with them. You know, even a $17 bag of beans, which is a pricey, but yeah. average, you know, you're seeing that more and more, um, that bag of beans, if you buy that bag of beans and figure out how to brew that in a way you like is way cheaper than going to the coffee shop and buying a $4 latte every day. And so if you're in a dorm room or you can't afford a grinder and you're like me and I drink a bag of coffee every week, that's not too long to have it sitting ground. So start talking with your local coffee shop and say, hey, I got this pour over, can I buy this bag of beans and will you grind it for me? Like they have saying. a nice grinder yeah. and get them to write that grind setting on the bottom of the bag and then come back in and say, hey, I really liked it this was the grind setting or say, Hey, that was a little sour. That was a little under extracted. I played with the bed surface. Can we go a little finer or vice versa? That was bitter. It was a little too fine. Can we go a little coarser and come up with the grind setting that works for you and buy your coffee fresh roasted and freshly ground by your local roaster. And you can drink a great cup of coffee every day for, you know, bag of beans and a $30 pour over setup. Mm-hmm an electric kettle yeah, in your room. So a scale would be really nice, um, but you can, you know, if you're paying attention to the volumetrics that you're pouring in there, you can get pretty good at estimating how much water you've put in there, but that is going to affect the final outcome is how much water you pour through that pour over each time. You would then say for this, we're trying to help people get the best coffee they can on, you know, at the best price point, you would still say go pour over versus an AeroPress because of the consistency issue you found. That was what I found. And that was even using, you know, like I said, a scale with a, t a scale down to the 10th of a gram and, and a timer. And so I was going with weighing my dry coffee I'd put into the AeroPress. I was weighing the water. I was counting the number of stirs. I was timing it, um, pressing it. Um, yeah, I just, I personally couldn't, achieve the consistency I can with a pour over. And I don't know how much of that is due to, you know, one of the challenges, I know the original founder of the AeroPress recommended 170 degree water. 
um, which in theory would make it better for altitude. Um, but also the, if you're doing any sort of brewing in the AeroPress, so most of the methods you turn it upside down, inverted, put some coffee, time it, flip it over and press it into your mug. It is a thin walled plastic device. And so it's going to, whether I'm brewing that in the summer or whether I'm brewing that in the winter when my house is cold, that's ultimately going to affect the brewing process because of how quickly it's reacting to the elements outside of what's happening in the AeroPress. Wow. I will say on the AeroPress, we've started, this comes from some of my same research, uh, talking about extraction, fines. Uh, we are using AeroPress filters for our espresso shots. Huh. But that might be a whole nother, uh, another topic. And if somebody has gotten this far into this conversation and is now a little bit like, okay, I tapped out a while ago, like this all actually now sounds too complicated. Maybe this is where we come full circle to where we started the conversation, which is like, well, if you start with a good instant, the brewing variables have been removed and you can pour whatever water of whatever temperature and mix that with the instant and still end up with a relatively inexpensive cup where the most of the variables, I mean, like all of the variables have kind of been removed. The only variable would be, is your cup clean <laughs> and affecting the flavor? <laughs> um, interesting. Well, Hey man, we should wrap this up soon. We did not talk about Mocha masters versus Euras. I will say you told me, I think yesterday you're actually kind of intrigued by these mocha masters, which I took as, you know, pretty high praise. I will say I, I took a shot at Cody earlier for like in dark roast, but I'm, I am still using this every single day and I'm still a pretty big fan personally. I have said I would branch out to experiment with some other methods, but I'm such a creature of habit. It is really hard for me in the morning to not just, and I was about to use the word blindly, but it is, it is so simple. Like I just, this is my habit. This is what I do. I knock it out. I really like it. You probably, I guess around this time, I think, I don't remember if I got the Mocha Master first and then started using like the Ethiopian washed and naturals or like which of those came first, but man, that combination I'm a, a huge fan of. But anyway, um, maybe another time we'll talk about, we'll go deeper into sort of the, you know, coffee gear and the, the, the various, uh, ways we can brew this stuff. On that note, I think what we should do is take a second and transition to whiskey because I learned you had never had whistle pig. Correct. So give us just a second here. We're going to pour a couple glasses. Sam has just had his first ever taste of whistle pig 12 year. We're drinking it neat. What did you think? Incredibly smooth. That's my number one word. Also for a rye whiskey, normally there's a pretty hefty spice bite on yeah. the back end of it. And this it's there, but it is not overpowering. It wasn't like choking or coughing. Um, I'd love to try it in a Manhattan. Huh? See, and like for my take, the 12, I only ever drink neat. The 10 is a bigger punch and bigger finish. So 10 and six, the 10 year old and the six year old is what I tend to, if I'm going to mix it, which I don't that often. Right. And then 
I feel like they're 15, it's sort of like the 10-year-old and the 12-year-old had their love child. So mm. it's a bigger... It's, it's not as smooth. It's still smooth. It's like smooth. It's smooth and big. My words are now failing me. I gave the 12-year-old to somebody and they were kind of like, that's actually too... It's like, I want more. I want it is sweet. Yeah. The 12 year. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a, it is pretty sweet. This is fun. I don't know that you're a Q grader or a sommelier, but this is fun doing <laughs> somebody who's used to finding like, that's actually more blueberry than raspberry in their coffee. I, I haven't done this before live. Cheers. Cheers. Well, excellent. Well, hey man, another pleasurable conversation about, well, skiing and the outdoor industry and then coffee and then whiskey. So this is about par for the course for us. I've learned a lot from you over this last year. As we said earlier in this conversation, you introduced me to a drink that was hardly recognizable as coffee from what I had been kind of used to drinking. And um, so it's always fun to kind of get, you know, further your education and be introduced to new things by like good people that you like. So thanks for coming on and talking to us. And hopefully we've given some folks uh, some new things for them to consider too in their, uh, you know, in their personal coffee journey. <laughs> hopefully they'll be able to make better cup of coffee than they've ever made before. So yeah, thanks for having me on and maybe we can go skiing together this winter. Hey, that sounds pretty good. Well, hey, thanks man. And uh, talk to you soon. Thank you. Well, that's it for our second episode of Crafted. I want to say thanks to Sam for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And then as promised, next week, our conversation is one that I recorded on site in Park City, Utah from Offset Beer with Connor Brown. It's a fantastic conversation So be sure that you are subscribed to Crafted and we will be serving up that episode for you fresh next Wednesday morning. Talk to you then.